It's been a great pleasure to be here this weekend, and I'd like to extend a, a personal thanks to, to the Kelly family for their kindness in uh, feeding Greg and myself uh, over the weekend. We're not 5,000, but it's still uh, a major exercise. Mark 6. Uh, one of the, well, many people think of Mark's gospel because it's the shortest of the four gospels uh, as the simplest of the four gospels. But of course, size, my wife being only four foot nine, would tell you that size is no guide to stature. And the brevity of Mark belies the sophistication of Mark. Mark is a gospel writer who chooses his words very carefully. And every clause, it seems, carries huge weight. And so I want to focus this morning on one, one line that we can, often when we read the gospel, we'll just breeze over it because its meaning seems so obvious to us. And I want to dig below the surface of this statement to show the full or some of the depth of what Mark is trying to do at this point. And that is the first we find, the clause we find in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Just a bit of context for this uh, uh, moment in Mark's gospel. Uh, if, you, if you pick up, if you, if you go home this afternoon and you read Mark's gospel from chapter 1, you'll see that by the time we get to chapter 6, there's been an escalating series of conflicts within Jesus' ministry. There's an escalating conflict with the religious authorities. Every time Jesus goes into a synagogue in the Gospel of Mark, it seems he's there to cause trouble. There's some kind of confrontation that takes place with the religious authorities. We've just seen that the ministry of Jesus, or the broader ministry of the kingdom, one might say, has come into violent confrontation with the political authorities. If you look back in Mark chapter 6, the event that's recounted in Mark chapter 6, immediately before this section, is Herod's imprisonment and execution of John the Baptist. So the political conflict is heating up as well. And there's also an escalating conflict with spiritual powers. Jesus has had these amazing confrontations with demon-possessed individuals, including that wild man who lives in the tombs, most unclean of men, possessed by a legion of demons and living among the dead. So Jesus' ministry at this point is, it's reaching a point of major confrontation. And just before we get to this passage, he sent out his disciples, a sort of evangelistic mission. And the disciples have now returned to him and he decides that he will go to a desolate place. The crowds have been pressing in on them. They can't get any peace and quiet. They're getting tired. They need to rest. And so he decides to go to a desolate place. And it's important, I think, that we emphasize the the desolate nature of this place. Several times in this passage, we're told it's a desolate place. As Greg and I were flying on uh, Thursday from uh, Fort Worth, Dallas-Fort Worth, across to Albuquerque, we looked out of the window, and I can't remember if it was Greg said to me or I said to Greg, wow, that is a desolate place. <laughs> there is nothing, it seems, between Dallas and Albuquerque. It's just flat desert. It's a desolate place. And it's not somewhere 
you would typically want to just wander out into. Jesus, of course, has chosen a desert place because he doesn't want the crowds pressing around him. He needs a break. He and his disciples need some time on the road. So they've gone to a desolate place to discourage the crowds. It doesn't work. But I do want to emphasize the desolate nature because if you've got a a children's Bible at home, quite often the feeding of the 5,000 is depicted as this sort of rather pastoral scene in a meadow where the food's being distributed. It wouldn't have been like that at all. It would have liked being in the middle of the desert somewhere or on a rocky seashore. This is a desolate, desolate place. And it's here that as Jesus looks out on the crowds that have still followed them, even though they've gone out of their way, he and his disciples, to make it as difficult as possible, as he looks out on the crowds, he has compassion on them. And he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And that brings, there's a sort of, I suppose, an immediate contextual problem preaching on this in an American context. Uh, Americans don't do sheep, it seems. Uh, Where I grew up in Gloucestershire, in the west of England, it was a small town that was built on the wool trade. Didn't have to travel very far from my home, and there were sheep everywhere. Probably more sheep than people in some areas. My father-in-law lives on an island off the north coast of Scotland. He's an electrician by trade, but he he has a small croft farm. He keeps sheep. He trains sheepdogs. I know about sheep. I think I know when I read this passage what it means when it says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd, they just wander all over the show. There's no kind of guidance or direction there. How do I communicate that to an American audience? No sheep possibly for miles around Albuquerque. Are you at a disadvantage when you come to this passage not knowing much about sheep? Well, I'm going to suggest no because... The primary reference, the primary reference of this verse, sheep without a shepherd, is not, it's not appealing to the sheep people out there. What it's doing is it's connecting with a long stream of Old Testament teaching. And it's only when you make that connection that you really see what's going on in this passage I hope you've got your Bibles with you, because I'm going to make you work a bit this morning. You're going to have to look up some verses. The first verse I want you to look up is Numbers 27. Numbers 27 occurs at a, it's a significant point in the history of Israel. You remember, Moses has sinned. He's led the people out of Egypt. He's led them on their wanderings through the wilderness. But Moses sinned. He failed. And so the Lord has said to Moses, You'll see the promised land. I'll take you to the very border so you can see the promised land. But you won't, I won't allow you to lead my people over into the promised land. And this, of course, means that they have to uh, think about appointing a new leader. Who's going to lead the people into the promised land? Numbers 27, uh, verses 15 to 18, when Moses makes his appeal to the Lord about a new leader. And see what Moses says here. Numbers 27, verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. 
Notice that phrase that Mark uses. It's being used here by Moses in the Old Testament. At that moment when, if you like, the military and political leadership of the people of Israel is about to be passed on to the next generation. And the language that Moses uses about the people who might potentially be left without a leader to bring them into the promised land is, if we don't appoint somebody, they will be like sheep without a shepherd. He fears that the people will lack strong political and military leadership. And thus the Lord appoints uh, Joshua, if you look at verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. This shepherd of the people is going to be the man in whom is the Spirit. Lay your hands on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel, may obey. Moses has appealed to the Lord and said, you need to put somebody in place to replace me as I can't lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And the Lord has said, well, let's appoint Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, who will become the great captain of Israel at this point. And this idea of the shepherd as, if you like, the political military ruler of Israel, continues in the Old Testament. Turn with me to the first book of Kings, chapter 22. This is a pretty grim moment in Israel's history. The kingdom is divided between Judah and the other tribes of Israel. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. Ahab is king of Israel. And remember, Ahab is... You remember that refrain in the book of Kings where you, you have a one king succeeds another and the, the writer says, so-and-so became king and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This man who'd set up the idols at Bethel and Dan. Jeroboam's the kind of benchmark for wickedness among the kings of Israel. And then, of course, we get to Ahab and the writer says what? He says, as if it was a little thing to commit the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Ahab also married Jezebel of the Sidonians and brought the worship of Baal into Israel. So Ahab is, he's the nadir, the moral nadir of the kings of Israel. And look at how this prophet describes Israel at this point. The king, in verse 16, 22, uh, 1 Kings 22, verse 16, says, The king said to him, that's the prophet, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? The prophet's been sort of fobbing them off with, telling them what they want to hear, because he's just fed up, really, of these wicked kings. And the prophet said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. You see what he's saying there? That's a word, a line of condemnation against the kings. The kings who are meant to be the great military and political successors of Moses, Joshua, and Samuel. They've abdicated their responsibility. They've led Israel into wickedness. And how is that described? I looked out, and I saw the people of Israel, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Prophet Ezekiel, and you might want to keep your finger in this passage, because we're going to come back to it again in a few minutes' time, but the prophet Ezekiel 
makes substantially the same point in chapter 34 of his prophecy. Ezekiel, often not the favorite book of Christians because there's so much much measuring goes on apart from anything else. It's a difficult book to read as a Christian. But Ezekiel 34, it's pretty clear what's being said though. I'm going to start, I'm just going to read uh, initially at least, verses 1 to 6. You'll see if you're reading the ESV, the heading of this passage is prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel is prophesying against the kings of Israel at this point. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Maybe that shepherds feeding the sheep, that will become significant for us as we return to Mark in a few minutes. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. It's a description of what these shepherds are like. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. We might summarize that little section by saying they were like sheep without a shepherd. These kings of Israel, these shepherds of the people were busy lining their own pockets, filling their own bellies abusing the weak and allowing the strays to just wander off hither and yon. So when Jesus looks out and he sees Israel and he says they they were like sheep without a shepherd, the first thing we can say is Jesus sees these people have no king. And that explains something rather odd about Mark chapter 6, that if you If you don't get this point, you might think, well, Mark chapter 6 looks to me as if it's been thrown together. Mark chapter 6, you see, it starts off with Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Then he sends out the 12. Then we get this weird intermission where we suddenly cut over to the court of Herod and John the Baptist is put to death. And then we cut back to the returning of the 12. And it's a bit odd because the narrative flow seems to be broken. Why doesn't Mark just have it that Jesus sends out the twelve and then the twelve come back? Why does he deal with Herod at this precise moment in the gospel? Because he's making a point. Herod is the aspiring king of Israel and he's slaying the prophet of God. If ever you want an example of the fact that these people were like sheep without a shepherd, Herod gives it to you in spades. So actually, Mark is not just throwing his gospel together here. There's real method in his apparent madness. What Jesus sees as he looks out over the people in this desolate place, Herod has just demonstrated by his execution of John. He's meant to be the shepherd of the people. But he's no shepherd. He's killing the sheep. He's killing the prophets of God. 
So that's the first thing then we can say about shepherds in the Old Testament. But there's a lot more in the Old Testament on shepherds. One, without meaning to be profane or or, uh, in any way, one could say that God seems to have a soft spot for shepherds in the Old Testament. Genesis 4, first shepherd, Abel, looks after livestock. And his sacrifice is acceptable to the Lord. Then as we move on through uh, the Old Testament, guess what? Moses, Moses who will be the great shepherd of God's people in the wilderness, Guess where he trained? He trained as a shepherd in the wilderness. For 40 years he tended his father-in-law's flocks in the desert before the Lord called him to be the great shepherd of Israel. David. What can we say about David? Well, what was David before he was called? He's the least of Jesse's sons, and that's important too. And the Lord, you know, uses weakness in order to demonstrate his strength. First Corinthians, we're told that. David was also a shepherd, just like Moses. And interestingly enough, David is the only other figure to which the language of Numbers 27, 17 is applied in the Old Testament. If you turn with me to the second book of Samuel, chapter 5 and verse 2. 2 Samuel 5, 2. When David is anointed king of Israel, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. That's exactly what Moses says. Remember, when he's saying to the Lord, I'm passing on now, you need to appoint a new leader to lead them out and bring them in. That's what's being said about David at this point. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. David, the great figure of the Old Testament. In some ways, the Old Testament, Moses and David are the two great figures of the Old Testament. Both of them shepherds by profession. Both of them become shepherds of Israel. And here, very explicitly, that language of Moses in Numbers is applied to David. He's the great shepherd of Israel. Of course, as we move to the New Testament, as Jesus described, he's the son of David. And various times, Jesus himself adopts what? Shepherd language. Culminating, of course, probably most notably, in John chapter 10, verse 11, what does he say? I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the great fulfillment of all of this shepherd language pointing towards the great David who is to come. Not only is he king, he's also a shepherd. But there's more. There's more. I mean, this little verse that we can just, yeah, yeah, we know what sheep like a shepherd is. They just wander around all over the place. That's true. But there's more in the Old Testament than that. Not only are the military kings, political leaders of Israel, identified with shepherds, not only is the Messiah, the great David to come, identified with the shepherds, God himself is identified 
with shepherds. And this starts way back. You go back to uh, Genesis 48. I told you I was going to make you jump around a bit this morning. Genesis 48, verse 15. Jacob, at the end of his life, blessing his sons. He blesses Joseph in verse 15, and he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. What is Jacob saying there? He's identifying God with the shepherd. What about Psalm 23? The most famous shepherd passage in Scripture. Psalm 23 begins what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then, of course, perhaps the most exciting shepherd prophecy of the Old Testament. Turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 34 and let's continue reading. We've read that bit, verses 1 to 6, where God speaks judgment against the shepherds of Israel. But it gets harsher and more exciting as he moves on. Verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. We're getting to the punchline at this point. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Terrifying words. You kings, you are set up to protect the people. You are to be the representatives of me to the people. You're not to be like kings of other nations who lord it over their people. You are my king. You are my vice-regents, if you like. You are to reflect my character as you deal with these people. And yet you have not done so. You've devoured the sheep. You've let them wander hither and yon. But it gets better. What does the Lord then say? Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. 
And then listen to this description and ask yourself, does it remind you of anybody? I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. You see what the Lord is saying there? You shepherds, you have failed and I am against you. I am against you because you have betrayed my people and you have betrayed me. But in my compassion, I myself will be the shepherd of my people. I myself will come and seek the lost. I myself will come and heal the sick. I myself will come and break the strong and raise up the weak. God is the one who will lead his people protect his people, and fight for his people. And that takes us back then to Mark 6. Flick back to Mark 6, and let's read that verse again. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you understand that passage any differently now? What do we see here? What is the feeding of these people about. What we see here is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel 34. I myself will become the shepherd of my people. And one of the marks of the shepherd is what? He'll feed them. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 that day, the significance is not the filling of their bellies. The significance is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that I, the Lord, will become the shepherd of my people. I want you to notice a couple of things about this. One, notice the fulfillment of the prophecy. How often is it people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, two different gods, can't seem to tie them together. God of the Old Testament, he's all about judgment. God of the New Testament, he's all about sitting in a meadow, being kind and feeding people. Notice what's happening here. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy of judgment. The fact that Christ is there is a judgment on the kings, but also arises out of what? Divine compassion. One of the great things, I think, of having a good grasp of the fact that Jesus is not just man, but he's also fully God as well, is that when you read in the gospel narrative that Jesus says something or thinks something or feels something, you know that that is God manifesting something of himself to his people. What does Jesus do here? He looks out at the people and he has compassion for them. Where do we find that compassion? We find it in Ezekiel 34. What is Ezekiel 34 all about? The Lord looks out and he sees the way his people have been destroyed by the shepherds. And in compassion he says what? I myself will be the shepherd of my people. In the Old Testament, the compassion of the new is there. And in the New Testament, the judgment of the old is so crystal clear to us. This should be, I think, a great encouragement to us as a church. We use the language of shepherd about our leaders so often. We have pastors. The word pastor, of course, has those shepherd connotations. And we can get worried, you know, what would happen if the pastor leaves? 
What happens if the pastor's run over by a bus? I guess you could say in New Mexico, you know, what happens if our pastor is kidnapped by aliens, one might say? Uh, we can invest a lot in our pastor. But the great thing here is there is only one great pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment of the kingship of the Old Testament, the Messiah of the Old Testament, and the penetration, the exploding of God into history in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's here. And we should never lose sight of the fact that the great pastor of our church, of all of our churches, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And though we've been hearing a lot from Greg uh, this weekend about we live in the times of the tribulation, it's going to get worse before it gets better. God himself, Matthew 16, 18, said what? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. As God fulfills Ezekiel 34 here, so we can depend upon the great pastor of the church to make sure that whatever the weaknesses, whatever the problems, whatever the conflicts we have at a local level, whatever the inadequacies of the pastor we may have, the great pastor is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his promises are yes and amen. But notice in the passage in Mark, of course, that although Jesus performs this miracle, it's quite possible the crowds were unaware of it. There are 5,000 men. The text is very clear. There are 5,000 men. How many women and children were there? You know, maybe there was another 5,000 women, and maybe there were 10,000 children. We just don't know. It is a vast number. It's hard to believe that they would all have seen the great miracle that took place. If they all benefited from the miracle, why? Because the disciples, the under-shepherds, distributed distributed what Jesus had done to the people. And I want to suggest there's an analogy to the church today. Yes, we have one great shepherd, but we also have under-shepherds in the church. I've just said, you know, don't put your pastor on a pedestal. Don't expect too much. Don't invest your faith in your pastor. But there's also a sense in which you should respect your pastor and be grateful to him. Why? Because he brings the grace of God to you. As he preaches the word week by week, he distributes the miracle that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching and teaching is what? It is a feeding of the flock. The food doesn't come from the pastor. The food comes from the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, from Christ arriving in history, from Christ bringing God's compassion down to earth in a concrete form. But each week, the pastor distributes from God's largesse. So to close then, a couple of things just to draw out by way of a final application. Never just gloss over a text in Scripture. I love that text because we were talking yesterday about perspicuity. And there's a sense in what perspicuity talks about is the ability of anybody to sort of grasp the basics of what's being said. And I was being facetious earlier when I said, you know, Americans don't understand 
sheep. You don't have to understand sheep. You can make the transposition in your own mind. Well, I know what it's like when cattle are just wandering around. There's a sense in which you can read that verse and, and know what's being said. These people have no leader. These people are just wandering around hither and yon. Nobody to guide them. Scripture is clear. And yet Scripture also has depths which can be plumbed through careful study. When you go back and you set that verse in the context of Old Testament talk about sheep and shepherds, sheep without shepherds, the prophecies of Ezekiel, you see that a three-year-old child can understand that text. And yet you could probably spend your entire life studying it and never fully grasp the awesomeness of God's compassion as expressed in that statement. Secondly, do not be discouraged by the state of the church. The great shepherd has come. Christ has come. Christ has promised that he will be the shepherd of his sheep. He fulfills that prophecy here. We can have confidence in that. We don't need to worry. We know how it ends. The church wins. Very clear, Matthew 16, 18. The church will win. That doesn't mean it's an easy path. It doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. There won't be acute suffering. There won't be temporary and passing discouragements, both for us as individuals and for us as a church. But the good news is, I will be the shepherd of my sheep. And it's fulfilled here, explicitly, in the Gospel of Mark. And thirdly, reflect upon the connection between the great shepherd of the sheep and the under-shepherd under whom we all serve. The under-shepherd is to be an example of Christ to the flock. And the flock is to respect him as one who is the vice-regent of Christ. 